Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Body wrappers Angelo Luzio, makers of high-quality total stretch tights, dancewear, performance wear, and Angelo Luzio shoes, is a proud sponsor of this episode of Conversations on Dance. Body Wrappers has Tyler Peck, principal dancer with the New York City Ballet, as its spokesperson and designer of Tyler Peck Designs for Premiere. Tyler's beautiful original designs fit perfectly are ideal for class, rehearsal, or performance and move well with the body and won't ride up in the back. Body Wrappers also makes apparel for ballet, jazz, modern, lyrical, hip-hop, tap, team, liturgical, performance wear for competition and recital, as well as Angelo Luzio shoes, all designed to enhance your experience while dancing. You may view all the products at bodywrappers.com or to purchase Tyler Peck designs by Body Wrappers, go to dancewearcorner.com. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. This week, we have the pleasure of being joined by American Ballet Theater Artistic Director Kevin McKenzie. A native of Vermont, McKenzie received his ballet training from the Washington School of Ballet. He was a leading dancer with the Joffrey Ballet and the National Ballet of Washington before joining American Ballet Theater in 1979 as a soloist. He would go on to dance with the company as a principal dancer until 1991. During his time with the company, he danced many leading roles, including Don Jose and Carmen, Albrecht and Giselle, and Romeo in Romeo and Juliet. In 1989, Mackenzie was appointed Artistic Associate at the Washington Ballet where he was a permanent guest artist and also acted as Associate Artistic Director of New Amsterdam Ballet. In October 1992, he was appointed Artistic Director of ABT where he would go on to choreograph many works on the company. This year, the company is celebrating his 25th year as Artistic Director, so we were happy to get the opportunity to sit down and look back over his career and the past 25 years with ABT. So we are so happy to be uh, live with Kevin McKenzie, Artistic Director of American Ballet Theater at the fabled 890 Broadway Studios. Uh, So thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure, pleasure. Great to have you. So can you tell us a little bit about your early career that brought you to American Ballet Theater in 1979? Oh, well, you know, as a student, I I was training in Washington, D.C., at the Washington School of Ballet with Mary Day. And in those years, Kennedy Center was not built yet. Um, uh, and when ballet theater would come through 
on tour, which they did every single year. In those years, ABT went religiously to just about every city in the, in the nation every single year. So a lot of locales have the same story of looking forward to that time of year when ABT would come. Um, and they would use our studios for rehearsals. And, you know, so I had this amazing uh, exposure to these remarkable art, to a generation of remarkable artists, you know, at 15 watching Carlo Fracci and Eric Brun work out the mime scenes and their Giselles and, you know, timings and, you know, this, the, the depth of what they would work on to witness when you were that impressionable. Uh, it was pretty much a slam dunk that that's where I would, you know, I would point at that and say, I want to be just like that when I grow up, you know. <laughs> Um, uh, but as circumstances would have it, I didn't go directly, um, from school to ABT, uh, mainly because my teacher said, no, don't do that. You know, you're 18 years old, you're just out of school, you know, spend a year figuring out what it means to be a professional, you know, before you go to New York, go anywhere, but don't go to New York. Um, and so I stayed, there was a, the Washington National Ballet was right there and, uh, so I stayed and did my internship, if you will. And to my surprise, I liked it so much, I stayed for two years. And then I, then I got the bug. Then I was like, okay, I'm ready for New York. Um, I uh, came, I had the misfortune to have my audition um, uh, in 74, around just about the time that Mikhail Baryshnikov defected. Uh and with all the sort of chaos of, you know, oh my God, he's coming and setting up this inaugural performance at that at what was then State Theater, um, uh, I had uh, well, I don't know how far to get into this. <laughs> Let me back up, and you can edit this out if, ne if necessary. Um, I had when I went to New York, I auditioned for ABT, and Lucia Chase gave me a contract. But the thing is, I had. Two weeks left on my contract, uh, isolated in Washington, you know, like I don't know, two weeks in August or something. This was like June. Um, uh, and when she discovered that I had still time on my contract, she said, oh, dear, we don't take people with active contracts. You have to be available. Mm -hmm. um, which subliminally was a big lesson for me in later, year, later years. But um, I... So I, you know, and she said, but you can stay in on the summer and take class and have run of the place and you can re-audition when you're free. And then, of course, Mikhail Baryshnikov defected and, you know, um, uh, so I couldn't get in the door. Uh, and in the meantime, Robert Joffrey um, uh, actually contacted me and I always wondered about that. And I, I wondered if Mary Day hadn't intervened um, but at any rate, I went and auditioned for him and he offered me a contract. And it was the day before Mikhail Baryshnikov's premiere in New York. And I said to him, can I wait a day and talk to you later? <laughs> and um, went over and hung out to the stage door waiting for Lucia to come out. Uh, and, went fi and of course, I waited until the performance was over. Never saw the performance, never saw anything. Um, and she said, well, I think you should probably take the job. So I was like, <laughs> so I did. And... Uh, uh, 
I think it was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. I spent five years at Joffrey. I was at that impressionable age. You know, I was 20 years old. Um, I really did need to figure out how to live my life to support my art as opposed to uh, call myself an artist and party, as every 20 young 20-year-old does. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I figured out what my where my weaknesses and strengths were professionally. Um, and so by the time I came in 79, I, I was kind of ready in a way that I would not have been ready had I come, had, had I come to Bally Theater at 20 years old. Um, the circumstances were ironic. I had been auditioning almost every year for Lucia. Uh, and she, uh, you know, there was always something that, you know, there just wasn't room. And then I sort of got a chip on my shoulder. I said, well, now I'm doing principal roles and, you know, I'm not coming to the <laughs> ballet. And, um, uh, uh, and I realized, you know, she has a certain standard. She has a certain, it's her, you know, it's her company. It's her policy. I'm just going to have to get over this. And then I broke my foot. Oh, no. And I was out for like nine. It was kind of a serious thing. I had to, you know, reconstruct a bone and blah, 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 blah. And um, so I, uh, uh, in, during my time off, I, I sort of thought, what are you going to do, you know, when you come back? And I said, you know, if I have to be a janitor, I'm going to get in. So anyway, so I just made a little note to myself that, you know, if you, you just have to get in, just get in. That's the important thing. Get in at any level you can. And, um, and to my surprise, uh, I got a call from Ballet Theater asking if I could come guest with them. Oh. That's not a uh, bad end. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, my God. And I was not completely recovered from my foot. Uh, I used to laugh and joke that uh, whoever was on the other end of the line you know, before, before, uh, you know, once what that, that, you know, like a cartoon, it was as if I was sitting next to them saying yes. And the phone was still dropped on my end, you know? <laughs> um, but, uh, and the circumstances were such that I had, uh, learned and performed many times a, a potata by John Cranko called, uh, um, uh, Holberg potata. And, Martine Van Hamel, who was later to become my wife, um, <laughs> was in ABT, of course, and uh, she was always complaining that she never really had repertoire that was hers. You know, they would they would bring things in for her, and then uh, you know, Makarova and whatnot, and you know, would see it and go like, "Oh, I want to do that too," and they do it, and then of course she would, you know, not not have something exclusive. And so I, I remember mentioning to her, I said, you should see this potato we're doing at Joffrey. I mean, I, I, basically it's, it's meant for you and Clark. And, and, um, so she did, and they arranged for her to learn it. And so they got it all set ready for the premiere and Clark got ill and that was that. So they didn't have somebody. So she said, well, you know, there's a guy in New York from Joffrey that you know, <laughs> knows it and can do it. And uh, that was my end. I, I went and, you know, guessed it on my first performance with ABT with Martine. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it was like a, a bit of a, it was too good to be true. You know, like after the performance, Lucia offered me a soloist contract. And, you know, boom, there I was. Mm-hmm. And I had to really fast track my 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 i mean i was healed and and but i was not in full shape uh 
but it was it was a very interesting contrast. You know, the, those three companies. Uh, it, it made me understand that every place is you know that literally all politics are local. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that uh, every place does have its unique culture, and I, I was very um, impressed w- with the sort of adult culture at ABT. You know, there was there was a large degree of personal responsibility um, that was required. Yeah. So what was like, was that the, would you say that was the biggest difference for you, the two different cultures or the cultures of the three different companies? What was the biggest thing that you had to adjust to? Well, I would say that, you know, uh, Joffrey was such an, at that point in time, Joffrey was such an amazing, um, amazingly, amazingly diverse repertoire. Um, it, one had to have a very eclectic taste, and if you did not excel in particular uh, styles of dance, uh, it was really important for one to recognize its importance. Um, so when I came to ABT, that was there but personified. But Joffrey was a smaller company at the time. Um, he was, a, I, I think he was a real visionary. Um, I, I, I have such incredible respect for him and his, his sort of daring to go backwards and forwards and stay incredibly current at the same time. Um, but the ship he ran was very much Mr. Joffrey's, you know. And the, the telling thing was no one called him Robert uh, or Rob, you know, or Bob. Um, <laughs> but everyone called Lucia Lucia. Hmm. You know, at New York City Ballet, it was Mr. Balanchine or Mr. B. Nobody called him George. Right. You know, so right there is a signal. Sure. Um, um, I, but it was in those days, you know, I, I have made some changes from those days, uh, probably taking a little bit more to um, Joffrey's approach uh, than, uh, you know, minus the Mr. McKenzie. <laughs> I was just going to say, <laughs> yeah. what does everyone call you? Uh, um, <laughs> But it was, one was, uh, there were certain expectations of um, preparedness at Joffrey that was micromanaged. And it was not when I came to ABT. There was a standard that was expected, but it was up to you to keep that standard, not up to somebody overlooking you to keep that standard. So is that something, uh, maybe a balance that you try to strike in present? Absolutely. You know, and, and then, you know, and then years, if you fast forward it, you know, I was, I was the last thing I was expecting to be was director of ABT. You know, it was just not in my, um, on my radar. Uh, but as I, as I was closing out my career, um, I, I had, I, I, you know, it's interesting. I was like the tail end of, um, of a, of a run of amazing uh, generation of dancers. Um, uh, you know, all the people I grew up idolizing with, I actually, I sort of got to dance with my heroes, you know, um, just in time, you know. Um, and so I, I had these lessons from the giants um, that either retired or in the case of all the choreographers that I worked with and had that you know, I, I had such an affinity with died, you know? Um, so by the time I <laughs> was about to 
Sorry, that is way out of context, that part. <laughs> Back it up. Um, the, the, as I was finishing my career as a dancer um, and really kind of wondering what, you know, I knew I had an eye. I thought, you know, I'll probably be a really good ballet master or, you know, not so sure I want to teach. But I had a very good eye and I was good with, you know, with partners always liked to work with me because I could sort of subtly go if you just pulled up a little here or took a breath there, it would make life easier and la, la, la. Um, uh, but I got very interested in choreography, but very late. Uh, and I showed signs of promise, uh, but it was, very, you know, there was no, if I was to start my 10,000 hours, then at 36 or seven years old, you know, I'd be this age before I'd be any good. You know? <laughs> so, you know, but that didn't stop me. That's what, what, what I really wanted mm -hmm. to do. And I had a, a very big health crisis and my mentor, Mary Day, I uh, said, you know, while you're recuperating, you should come down here and figure out what your next steps are. Uh -huh. Of course, she was thinking, you know, I'm 80 something years old. I want this guy to take over my company sure. in school. <laughs> and, um, and it was a very valuable time. I, once I did recuperate, I, I was spending half a year at ABT and half a year there. And while I was there, I was teaching and, you know, I was having to make up the schedules and started to choreograph. So I got a sort of a microcosm of what it meant to, uh, take responsibility uh, as opposed to be in charge um, uh, and that the world was a little bit bigger than my world that I had planned for me as a great ballet dancer, <laughs> you know? Um, uh, so uh, I settled into that and I thought, well, this is perfect. You know, if I, if I, Mary will probably last another 10 years and by then I'll, I'll, I'll have, you know, my chops uh, developed as a choreographer and ballet theater called. And I was like, what? The? You know, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't quite wrap my mind around it. It seemed so outlandish. Um, but somehow I was convinced to do it by a chairman whom um, uh, displayed enough of a sense of irony and, and sense of humor that I thought, you know, if we're going to go down, uh, these, you know, I, at least I know it'll be for the right reasons. Huh. <laughs> um, and, you know, I studied the case and it was presented to me with, I think, a, a fair amount of honesty that, you know, ABT was pretty much at the end of its tether and everybody who had the experience had been asked and wouldn't touch it with a 10 foot pole. <laughs> and, you know, I had no experience and no reputation as a director, so I had nothing to lose by trying. Mm -hmm. All, you know, all of it, you know, and the pressure was just so huge. I, I was like, oh, yeah. oh my God, you know, and I was weighing, you know, this is the place that really gave me my artistic identity. And what, what do I owe it? You know, you know, what's my personal stake? And um, when it ended up being that, you know, I was flat out offered the job, I sat there in stony silence, just not knowing what to say to him. And he broke the silence by saying, you know, there's a lot of free food involved. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I can work with this guy. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so it turned out that I was in a circumstance that um, was really dire, uh, but everybody needed me to succeed. I mean, I could have been a axe murderer, 
you know, and they still needed me to succeed right. uh, because it was really that dire. Um, so literally, because you know, everyone from the receptionist to the board chair to the public to the critics were, you know, just waiting for this thing to get up off uh -huh. its knees and start walking again, and they gave me the time to learn what the where the bathroom was forget uh -huh. what it means to plan a season you know of, of this magnitude and um and i had just incredibly good luck with partners with um you know the right people came along came along at just about the right time enough to teach me what i didn't know um and teach me what i did and taught me that i need to have the patience to get what I wanted, that I wasn't going to get it, you know, that this was going to be a, an exercise in perseverance and patience. Right. We will return to Conversation Sundance in a moment, but first we want to talk to you about how you can make fresh home-cooked meals every night for you and your family with Blue Apron. The best part about Blue Apron is you don't need to do any meal prep or planning. They do it all for you. They even go and do the shopping and send you exactly what you need for gourmet meals every night. At Blue Apron, they are trying to change the way we get our food and how these ingredients are sourced. They have partnered with over 150 farms nationwide, allowing them to cut out the middleman and deliver fresh and nutritious meals right to your door. The best part is they only send you exactly what you need of each ingredient, eliminating unwanted food waste. And now we are happy to offer a special $30 off your first order for all of our listeners when you visit conversationsondancepodpod.com slash blue apron. Take advantage of this offer now, and next week you could be enjoying delicious meals that can be made in 30 minutes or less. So see what everyone is talking about and sign up today for $30 off your first order. Visit conversationsondancepod.com slash blue apron to get started and explore next week's menu. It must be difficult anyway to step into a position like that of such magnitude, but trying to find your artistic voice on the other side while you still have to deal with the financial strain. So what was the point where that started to sort of abate and you felt like you could really hit your stride and offer everything you had artistically? I would say it was probably a good six years in. Yeah. Um, things started to equalize. Uh, you know, we stopped talking about survival and started talking about the future. Uh, Things that I had planned on my first day started to become a reality, um, and we started to build. Uh, I would say, you know, it's interesting. I, I at first, I think because there was new leadership, there was a there was a flock of dancers that came from all over who wanted to, you know, be part of the reset, and I was incredibly lucky there, you know. Um, yeah, the men who, especially who joined, were it was just kind of astounding. Um, uh, but I, I began to see that that there was the debate started about the school, and everyone was arguing that well, you know, maybe what makes ballet theater special is that it doesn't have a school, right. uh, is that it it takes from the world and mm -hmm. and assimilates, um, but. There was a certain point in time where I thought, you know, uh, in in terms of trying to make an artistic statement where one wants to work with thinking artists who are facile and who have a, a broad respect, not just for ballet, but 
of all the styles and everything that feeds the art form. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if we could start a school that that embraced the notion that we are not here to teach ballet in a particular style, but to train dancers that once they are finished uh, in their training, have an understanding of everything that contributes to it, that has has the facilness of language to be able to uh, understand the roots and execute Bourneville like Bourneville should be done, uh, understands the stylistic and speed and whatnot of Balanchine's training that it can be done, understands the Vaganova porta bra and the difference between the Cicchetti porta bra, that they have this huge bag of tools um, to work with, that it's not about you becoming, you know, a one-trick pony, but you being in service to pushing an art form forward that, uh, you know, sounds incredibly bombastic, but can change the world. Because in the end, I always think of this art form as one of the highest forms of the most densely codified and refined form of body language. And everyone can relate to body language, whether they know it or not. You know, you can tell if the person sitting across you is open or closed. Um, uh, and, you know, what our duty as artists is, is across that fourth wall to, to, to really make people understand that there is more that unites us than divides us. And that... Um, Beauty is is something that is a pretty broad subject uh, and very uh, subjective in its in its um, nature. Uh, but no one can deny uh, that when you see an artist uh, in the same way that you see an athlete, say a swimmer going for that final stretch, you know, that one-tenth of a second will make the difference, the suspense and the danger of what's going to happen, uh, the unknown. But the beauty of the form of concentration and what what is embodied in human excellence is undeniable, whether you have grown up in the ballet audience or not. Um, so the all that is a very long-winded way to get you know that I want to train dancers with that not just how to point their feet and move fast or put their heels down and jump high and turn a lot but that they are thinking artists that actually encompass that that you have you have a duty to tell a story you have a duty to um convey you know when you watch the olympics everybody watches the olympics because you know People are going to do superhuman feats, but then what do they do? They, they have that talk about, you know, the strife and everything that went on behind Mm -hmm. it and the personal story and the Uh conflict. And, you know, Uh uh, I think as an art form, we want, I feel as artists, you need to make people feel and know that about Siegfried, about Odette Odile, about Giselle and about an abstract character that Radmansky will create that you look at those artists and you recognize yourself or someone that you know closely. That's our job. And that's what I wanted to train. That's what I wanted the school to start to prepare people for. And then the big question was, okay, how do we go about that? I was just going to ask, so how did that happen? Once you develop the idea, you develop the, you know, model that you wanted, how did you go about starting it? 
Well, I had the good fortune to uh, um, have a team of people uh, early on, uh, Franco DeVita and uh, Raymond Lukens, along with Kirk Peterson, who was a ballet master at the time, uh, to help me research what was really best about all the different schoolings, you know, so that we, you know, we're not going to go down one route here, you know? Um, and we quickly came to a consensus that the best thing to do was not to write a syllabus, but to write a curriculum. And then it needed to be age appropriate that people should not be do, you know, little girls and little boys should not be doing, you know, donkey at nine years old, right. you know? <laughs> um, and, we we began to be aware of what you know what what's called the competition school circuit, right. Um, right. where I had already found as a director that when I looked at resumes and saw all these competitions on the resume, but not any work yet, that many a time since I'd taken a chance on somebody that they could do one thing really well, yeah. right? Um, so you know I thought okay that's that's what we need to counter. Um, mm-hmm so that they do many things really well. Um, so it was really based on a curriculum and, and setting forth a set of guidelines so that in, in, in recognition of the fact that no school and no style and no syllabus has ever created a great dancer. Only individually inspired teachers have. So the thing is to give the teachers the tools and the network to figure out what works and what doesn't um, and to actually communicate with one another and maybe reward somebody who comes up with an idea that's brilliant and try not, if not to codify it, but include it in, into the curriculum um, that it should be a living, breathing thing that gets reviewed instead of organically evolve or in many cases devolve. Because I have found through time that many times when institutions become uh, you know, established, they start to become caricatures of themselves. And that's, that was the thing. Um, so, you know, now we've, you know, we're 10 years into it and we're starting, you know, curriculum 2.0, um, looking at what's worked and what hasn't most, most of it worked. Um, but some of it hasn't. And, uh, so it's going to be an ongoing project. You know, it's going to be the American part of our title. Right. The experiment. How do you think that that's affected uh, the work you see on stage now? A lot of those dancers have been absorbed into the company. Well, you know, the one thing that is interesting that ha- it has changed it and it hasn't changed it. ABT has always been a company of dancers. You know, it's always been a, you know, I, every company will say, oh, we're a family, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, but, but, you know, during my time dancing, there was a certain camaraderie. Um, and there were, as in any community, there were people who were sort of elitist in their thinking or um, sort of just not caring about anybody but themselves. Or And then there was the, those that, you know, were, you know, the bleeding hearts and I don't know. Uh, but with, with a group, a generation now that has come through the school uh, and through the studio company and, in, you know, the whole has, has grown throughout the ranks, I find that there's a, there's a, um, that sense of family is based on being in service of something bigger than yourself instead of joining a place where you can become a star. Um, and in retrospect, I think people are, are, are I think they're becoming 
I don't like the word stars, but I think they're becoming notable for um, leading a charge. Um, and that's not just a ballet theater. I think that's just another generation. You know, it's like the, the, it's. I think the age of the of the megastar is not over for a, a bad reason. I think it's over for a good reason. I think it's because there's a, a certain level of expertise and understanding. Um, and better training, basically, all over. Um, and what it's contributed to is is the notion that hmm, this is an interesting thing. I'm having a little revelation here. Um, <laughs> what remains to be seen that I feel is a big part of my job at Ballet Theatre is to safeguard the notion that Innovation is a really fabulous and wonderful thing. But if you lose connection to the root of the art form, then you're going to create a different art form. And that's fine. But at ballet theater, you have to have a, a foundation and a root to the classics. You have to study them and do them, whether you excel at them or not. Right. And you can actually have a career and not completely <laughs> excel at them. But, um, but if you don't have a reference, it's sort of like, you know, I'm going to be a playwright, but William Shake, who's that guy? Shea, uh, uh, he was somebody old. Yeah. You know, I mean, you have to have a sense right. of, of history mm -hmm. and where it came from and why. Right. So speaking of a sense of history, um, American Ballet Theater has a very rich early history that, um, you know, the company has, um, I guess, an obligation to respect and, and definitely makes every effort to. But how do you how do you find the balance between having to do those war horses that will pack in your audience and doing something like a forties Ashton were created, um, you know, on the, that those early days in the company that maybe doesn't speak as easily to, um, my generation. I think it's all about, um, I, the, 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 first of all, every, everything that one puts on the stage, uh, whether it be the classic that you're holding, you know, onto, uh, or presenting eras of our, of our art form, you know, curating eras of art forms that aren't familiar, uh, and then stretch it to the newest, most fabulous, you know, exciting new thing that's unknown that interestingly has the highest appeal for a new audience. Mm -hmm. The classics have the most appeal for an old audience. It's the in-between audience that connects those dots that's uh, difficult to do, but if you can demonstrate, if someone is, if if, a, if an audience is coming to see the classics, they inevitably will become attached to a dancer. They go, "Oh, I like that dancer. I'd like to see them do something else." So if they see that someone do something else, that's like, you know, like the Meryl Streep of ballet, <laughs> where you go, "I can't believe that's the same artist is right. capable of that kind of stretch." <laughs> then you start to broaden your tastes a little bit so in the end it's about is it believe when the curtain goes up is it believable mm -hmm. forget what it is you're doing but is what you're doing believable and relatable and you know we can't do the classics in a stodgy way it has to be relevant um so you know there's a million ways to interpret you can go you know with the classics, you can learn them externally and do them absolutely perfectly with absolutely no understanding of what's behind it. And it'll be technically beautiful and the lines are nice, but somehow everybody 
kind of understands that. I don't know why. You know, they either understand why or they don't know why, but it's not moving them. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. It's got to move people. Um, I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, something like, for instance, uh, Lexi's, Lexi Romanski's uh, Sleeping Beauty is something that brought the company a lot of acclaim. And that is a complete look backwards. But by making it have life from within, it made it perfectly relevant to our present day audience. And the reason I think that worked, because he took a certain amount of flack for, oh, he's, you know, he's going backwards. He's, you know, why is he going backwards? He should be going, you know, I, I danced in five productions of Sleeping Beauty. I did my own production. I staged my own production. When I saw what was happening in the studio, I was stunned. I thought, I don't know Sleeping Beauty at all. If this is, you know, how did, how did we get to where we are from, from this that, point? Right. So it, it turned into a fresh new look. And that was the thing. It, it was, even by recreating those costumes and sets, uh, which by the way, wasn't a reconstruction. It wasn't, you know, it, there's a certain amount of, it was based on, it was in, in the spirit of, not to the letter of the law, it was to the spirit of the law, if you will. Uh, but as close as we could get it. Mm-hmm. We were seeing something as fresh and new as those people a hundred were, you know, a hundred years ago, 30 years ago or something like that. Um, uh, it, pretty exciting yeah. because it's a universal theme, you know? I mean, that's the thing. that They're called the classics for a reason. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just because they're good or they're the ones that lasted. They they reflect the human condition with all its attachment to myth, to power, to, you know, beauty, to all of it. I mean, that's what separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom is that we have the ability to tell stories. We have the believable we have the ability to collectively believe in something that isn't true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh we have the and that could be a really good thing and that could be a really bad thing. Um that's what sets us apart. That's why we're so complex and that's what all the classics reflect. It's the human the foibles and the genius of our condition. And that's, you know, technology doesn't change that. So speaking of the classics, we were talking with one of your dancers, Isabella Boylston, uh, last week, and we she was talking about how you make it a priority to teach new principal dancers who are premiering in a role, teach them their part in the classics. Why is this something that's so important to you? Well, I think that there are not that many people really left at Ballet Theater, at least, um, that worked with Tudor and worked with, you know, um, Macmillan and, and, and worked with... Um, uh, uh, McCarva and with uh, Martin Van Hamel, with Cynthia <laughs> Gregory, with Eric Brun, with you know Rudolf Nureyev, with Mikhail Baryshnikov, and you know, okay, now I'm just name dropping. <laughs> you know? But um, it's it's really important, I think, for them to understand uh, that it's not just the steps that it came from. So it's an opportunity while you're teaching to layer the information with, you know, I remember seeing Eric do this and what impressed me while I was learning it was the following and blah, 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 blah. Uh, And to just give them a sense that they are doing 
They have to carry on the voices of the people who created these roles and kept them alive. They're a continuum of the originators. Um, we can't, you know, unfortunately, we can't, you know, bring in Maurice to teach these roles. Um, so the next best thing is the people who, who at least have a sense of history uh, uh, to inform the artist. And then it's up to the artist to make it relevant. Because in the same way that I sort of hold this maybe irreverent, stodgy attitude that, you know, let's just recognize that the human brain is not fully developed until you're 25. You know, you can't make a real rational decision until you're roughly 25. (laughs) So, you know, don't come talk to me about, you know, I'm so ready and whatnot, you know, Um, but at the, on the other side of that coin, once an artist gets to a place where they're, mm-hmm, I have to recognize that if they don't, if they can't relate to my references of my cultural upbringing, you know, they'll look at me blankly when I say, God, that looks like Danny Kay choreographed it, you know, and they'll go, who's Danny Kay? You know? <laughs> at the same point, they'll have references that I have no idea what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. So it's, that is the point. It's the point between what we both know on either end of a divide that we're willing to edge closer to teach each other about our experiences. So that's the microcosm. That's why I want to teach it because that's what they have to do with the audience. Yeah. I think it's interesting that you, um, you brought up age and maturity because um, in the past couple of years, you've really rewarded some long-term veterans, people who um, spent either a lot of time in the core or many years as a soloist. So why do you think those sort of um, promotions from within what do they do for the company, and um, why do you, as an artistic director, reward at a later point? You know, it's interesting because we all evolve. I'm a different person than I was when I first took this job. I'm a very different director than when I first took this job. Um, and you know, it's it's about shifting and evolving philosophies. I think that you know, in the end, uh, there was a time when I brought a lot of guest artists in, um, uh, and you know, there it, it creates. It's one thing to have a guest every so often. It's another thing to have it as a policy. Um, uh, you know, it creates strife within a company. You go like, but geez, that's my performance. You know, um, and my defense, if you will, was uh, was to say, you know, listen. The thing is, anybody can go out and hire a guest artist. You know, you can put anybody in the front that could do thirty-two fuetes and do. Mm-hmm. But the measure of a company is its corps de ballet. Mm-hmm. You know, the measure of a company is that, you know, the Pasha's assistant in Corsair is as good in that role mm-hmm. as Conrad is in his, mm-hmm. you know, right. that the mother in Giselle can move you right. with such power and depth that the principals do, uh, you know, that's what you guys got to keep your eye on that ball, you know, mm-hmm. and time will tell the tale. And, you know, time has told the tale. I feel now is the time that we no longer really need to bring in guest artists, um, that we have people who have, you know, there's a difference when you have grown up in not a system, but through a ballet that gives you a layer of understanding, um, of a particular production that you can, then really embrace its universal truth. This is a little heady stuff, but you know, but it's harder when you come flying in sure. Sure. because the production is a little different. The culture is a little different. Mm-hmm. You, you can deliver you a brilliant performance and people can learn from it, but there's something about it. It's like, it doesn't quite 
you know, it's like the new chair in the living room that hasn't really been thought through with the whole decor. Sure. Right. right. Um, uh, I realized, you know, we had like really fine chairs that we could just put in the living room. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, uh, not, not, to, not to mention they deserved it wildly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's about a coming of age and, um, I'm not sure whose coming of age it is, but I know that I am now on my third generation of dancers and I want the fourth to be one that has embraced all of these things we've been talking about as opposed to come in and go, well, I think I have a better way. And it's like, well, if you're going to have that argument, then let's, let's turn it into practice, you know, because I'm completely, I'm all about like, sure, let's, let's experiment. Uh, but you got to stick around if you're going to experiment. So we're just about out of time, but I just have one more question for you. So you are now celebrating your 25th year as artistic director this season. So if you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice to yourself as a new artistic director, what would it be? You know, I, it would probably be very consistent to, I think what I subliminally knew is that you don't know what you don't know until you find that out. So don't, <laughs> you know, don't be arrogant. Right. That's great. That's great. Thank you so much for your time, Thanks Kevin. So we much, really Kevin. appreciate that was so it. Great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Conversations on Dance. Follow us now on social media at, at Conversations on Dance and subscribe now on iTunes so that you will automatically be notified when a new episode goes live. Thanks for joining us this week on Conversations on Dance. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.